Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new season of the Health Conscious Podcast. I am your host, Jefferson Akers, and on today's episode, my co-host, Milan Damani, and I are joined by Jonathan Abbott. John is a 2017 graduate of the University of Connecticut and a 2019 graduate of Cornell University's Sloan Program in Health Administration. John is also a former senior consultant in Deloitte's strategy and operations practice, where he worked with clients across the healthcare industry to help them achieve their long-term strategic goals and sustain operational efficiencies. Currently, John is a senior analyst at McKinsey, where he works with his clients on growth strategy and revenue cycle management engagements. In this episode, we discussed a host of topics ranging from revenue cycle management to career advice for aspiring consultants. We really hope you enjoy our discussion, and without further ado, let's begin the episode. So that's a little bit about John. John, thank you so much for being with us today. We're excited to have you on, and it's kind of great to see things come full circle as once upon a time, you were the host of the Health Conscious Podcast, and now you're joining us as a guest. Absolutely. I'm, I'm happy to be here, and uh, thankfully you guys invited me back. Um, so thank you both. Yeah, and as I said, we're very excited to have you. I'll be getting us kicked off with questions for the day. So as I'm sure you're aware, COVID-19 really underscored the importance of providers having a sound supply chain. So I was wondering to start, if you could walk us through some of the changes you saw to provider supply chains due to COVID-19. Sure, it's a really interesting topic and, and something that I think is very pertinent to a lot of providers now as we're coming out of the pandemic. Um, and they're thinking about how they can build the future state strategy for their supply chain. Um, Pre-pandemic uh, providers, broadly speaking, went with the mantra of point in time supply, um, which basically means that they had these models that would predict exactly how much supply they need for a particular item. And uh, they try to limit the amount of inventory they had on hand, right? So that, that works really well in normal times, but uh, not so great in, in pandemic times when the demand spikes like crazy for things like PPE um, and other, other items like that, ventilators and, and some, even some more high-tech items. Um, so that, that was kind of the big focus um, of the supply chain work uh, throughout the pandemic. I think initially providers were sort of uh, struggling and uh, pretty anxious about getting as much PPE as possible and, and um, making sure that <laughs> they had a, a proper stock to, to deal with uh, any sort of COVID spikes. Um, so th that, that was the first change, switching from a point in time model to more of a, a inventory on hand model. Um, and I think broadly going forward that having more inventory will likely be some, sort of the future of, of how providers are thinking about their supply chains, um, just making sure they're, they're equipped to deal with any uh, supply shocks that may occur, uh, whether it be either A, from a domestic event happening in the US, or, or B, there, there might be supply shock, shocks happening in other countries. Um, like for example, in, in China, um, uh, that's, they, they supply a lot of the PPE supplies as well as some of the other um, high-tech items. So uh, another thing that providers are thinking about is de-risking their supply chains by, uh, by sourcing from multiple countries besides just one. Um, so I'd say that's the other big change that's going on in the provider landscape. Got it. You raised an interesting point on kind of the scope of a supply chain extending beyond 
a nation's border. But just as a follow up, you did kind of touch on this in your answer, but what are some things you think providers can do to build a more resilient supply chain? Yeah, as I mentioned, I, I think diversification of sourcing is one major one. Um, before a lot of providers would, you know, they'd get their three M masks and all the masks were produced in a couple factories in, in China, right? Or a couple domestic factories. So I think having a more uh, diversified uh, sourcing platform is, is something that they can do to, to make their supply chains more resilient. Um, as I also mentioned, having more, just having more inventory on hand, right? That'll, that'll help them weather the most severe shocks to the system um, until they can build up that supply um, as well. And then third, I, I think there's a lot of interesting things going on in the technology space and supply chain. Um, there's some cool programs that uh, help model out any potential uh, supply demand uh, changes and they, they can model, you know, within the parameters, set parameters in an emergency situation, how much inventory would they need at a minimum level to continue functioning? Um, so I think investing in those type of technologies uh, is exciting. Um, and then lastly, I would say providers are also taking a, a bigger hand in, in managing inventory themselves. Uh, previously, providers would uh, partner with some, uh, some vendors and other, other folks like that who would help them manage the supply chain. And I think uh, taking more of a, I guess, a direct approach to managing the warehouses for inventory would would also help uh, build up that resiliency uh, just because they have more control um, over the system. Got it. No, it will be very interesting to see whether or not this kind of just-in-time supply chain model gains a lot of traction going into the future. One follow-up I did have before I moved into my next question was, have you noticed a lot of reliance um, post-COVID on group purchasing organizations within provider supply chains? Yeah, of course. And, and that's... Uh, that, that was even a, a discussion like pre-pandemic. Um, I, I think I think it's only going to be more prevalent going forward. Um, so definitely to answer that question, I think that um, that will be part of the future. Got it. Next, I want to kind of transition a little bit away from the supply chain and talk about the presence of private equity firms in healthcare. So typically we see private equity firms in very innovative and disruptive spaces. And with that being the case, could you tell us about areas in the healthcare industry with significant private equity activity? Sure. I mean, broadly speaking, I think the private equities are pretty excited about the healthcare space um, from multiple lenses. So you have the technology aspect that is getting huge traction, both from private equity as well as venture capital firms, um, you know, around the products like digital health, um, engaging patients. Um, and mental health needs, um, things like that. Uh, e even some apps um, on the phone as well. Uh, you see a lot of the big private equity firms getting involved in that. Um, and then conversely, on the other side, they're also getting really excited about services that, that are provided, service organizations that provide uh, their technology and services to hospitals. Um, so that's patient engagement vendors. Uh, I think Cedar was the big one in the news recently. They're a unicorn and they provide uh, patient engagement services. I think, I think they raised like hundred million or 200 million recently in their, in their latest round. Um, and I know, I know some major investors are, are uh, 
our private equity firms um, and venture capital. Um, and also RCM companies, the private equities are getting really excited about them, uh, just given the need going forward. Uh, so there's a lot of excitement and activity in the space. And uh, I, I think a lot of work in, in the future is, is hospital executives and other, other people who work in healthcare um, more deeply interact with the, the private equity folks. So it'll be interesting to see. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like a lot of the private equity activity is being driven by the trend towards consumerism within healthcare. Would you say that's relatively accurate? Or if it's not, what would you say is driving the interest of a lot of private equity firms? Well, I think that's right, especially for the technology side. Um, as people are taking more control over their healthcare, um, there's a lot of excitement on potential areas of disruption or potential areas of growth um, that companies can explore. Uh, there are a lot of interesting startups who aren't public, who are private, that the private equities are, are excited about um, growing in the future. Um, on the other side, on, on private equity activity on more of the hospital vendor type roles, um, I would say it's just more driven by uh, by a consolidation and, and need to scale for some of those. Um, I think traditionally there hasn't been as much engagement in the space. And I think they see it as an opportunity to invest in very profitable companies that will continue to be profitable um, <laughs> in the future. Uh, and, and that's less so driven by, by um, consumerism and healthcare and more so just driven by an opportunity in the market. No, it'll be definitely interesting to follow how the push for more innovative care delivery is going to influence the involvement of private equity firms in healthcare. I know Millen also had some industry-specific questions he wanted to ask, so I'll pass to him to take over. Sure. Yeah, thanks, Jefferson. So, John, I know you have a little bit of experience and you're, you know, you're currently working on the Revenue Cycle Excellence Team at McKinsey. Can you talk a little bit more about your experience with Revenue Cycle Management in general and maybe for those of our listeners that are unfamiliar with revenue cycle management, you know, could you describe it? Uh, could you briefly describe what it is first and why it's important? Sure. So broadly speaking, revenue cycle management is the process of collecting payment on a given claim. So if you'll imagine the typical hospital service, say you go in um, because you want to get a vaccination um, or something like that, or you want to get a, a surgery done. Uh, typically, you you would schedule the procedure and that procedure would uh, create a claim. Um, and then that claim would be billed to an insurer and then the insurer would, would approve or deny the claim and then pay the, the hospital system. Um, so RCM is essentially ensuring that the process for receiving payment on a given claim is accurately received um, and properly received. A big part of that is denials management. Um, as you both know, and probably many of the listeners on this podcast know, um, there's a big issue with getting payments um, if you're a provider uh, from, from a payer, uh, especially if there's complexity in the service, just because there's so many potential points of failure um, in processing the claim. Um, so a lot of what RCM does is uh, making sure the yield on the claim or the proportion of the claim that's paid is, is high. Um, as a percentage of gross charges. 
Uh, so that's, that's one aspect of the uh, RCM process. That's the payer yield aspect. There's also the patient yield aspect. Um, and what that is, what that means really is collecting payment from patients uh, and making sure that yield is high as well. So if you'll imagine, you know, often with a procedure, the patient will have to pay some portion of it uh, through a deductible copay or coinsurance. Um, and typically it's, it's actually quite complicated and, and tough for provider systems to collect on, on those, uh, those liabilities that the patient has. Um, so RCM's job is to try to make sure that the yield on those patient liabilities is as high as possible. Um, and what that means is uh, making sure the processes for collecting point of service collections, for example, are robust and uh, make it easy for the patient to pay as soon as they're getting the service, which is what point of service means. Um, that also means post-service, they make sure the collection rate is high. And that usually that typically involves uh, reaching out to patients after through calls or, or um, email or other things like that to make sure they're paying, paying the bills there. Um, so those are really the two points of RCM. Um, the main points of responsibility, it's, it's uh, the payer yield on one hand, patient yield on the other hand. Got it. Okay. So that kind of leans into my next question, which, you know, I was going to ask you about the key components and technologies that are involved in RCM. Sure. And, you know, you just mentioned payer yields and patient yields being two main components, but really how have these components and technologies been utilized by health systems during the pandemic? I mean, for example, you know, with charity care, uh, you know, that's one critical aspect of revenue cycle management and, you know, payment collection. Have you seen that change at all from, from the provider side, uh, especially with the pandemic? Well, I mean, the pandemic has hit providers very hard. Um, broadly, you know, outside of RevCycle, their revenues have just been, um, they, they've been hurting, uh, just given that a lot of it is driven by, you know, specialty procedures and, and surgeries and things like that. Um, and then some of the other services and, and organizations are typically loss leaders uh, for those, for the high, high revenue services. Um, so as the pandemic hit, uh, the, the elective surgery stopped and the hospitals lost a big, a big portion of the revenue stream. Um, so to make up for that, they've been pretty focused on yield in the RCM space, because that's usually an area of a, a revenue win for providers. Um, so I, I think specific to the pandemic, what's been huge is patient engagement um, and getting the patient yield number higher. Um, that's typically a, a sore point. It's, it's typically hard to collect from patients. The yield number is quite low generally, maybe 20 to 30 to 40% um, on every dollar owed is paid back uh, to the hospital. Um, and part of the reason why this is so difficult is uh, hospitals just aren't really that good at reaching out and, and engaging with patients after service is rendered. Um, if you've ever received a hospital bill, you, you know, like it's, it's hard to read and it's hard to pay and you have to write a check and mail it back. Um, so there's a lot of interesting sort of technology innovations going on in the space where you could just take a picture of the bill and it'll pay it um, for you. So you don't have to like worry about writing a check, for example. Uh, they also do some interesting uh, like AI work and in, in predicting what patients are most likely to pay 
um, and then engaging those more heavily early on to increase that yield number. Um, so a lot of a lot of interesting things uh, technology-wise going into space, going on into the space. Um, and I, I think it's really needed, especially as hospitals are recovering uh, from from the pandemic uh, revenue losses. Um, investing in those areas. Got it. Okay. No, that actually definitely makes sense. And it's interesting to see that, you know, you mentioned AI as one component uh, mm -hmm. that's involved in sort of automating this revenue cycle management process, because we're definitely starting to see AI bleeding more into healthcare now with people sort of trying to develop models where it can pr predict and it can be used as a clinical decision support tool for primary care. But it's interesting mm -hmm. to see that revenue cycle is also another tool that it's being used for. Um, I also want to talk a little bit more uh, on another note about your other engagements with growth strategy. You know, you mentioned that was one of your other big roles at McKinsey. So with the engagements that you've kind of worked on in the pandemic, uh, what steps are firms taking to recover from what I think is a relatively slow growth phase? Yeah, yeah. And actually, before I go on that, the AI piece, uh, I just want to make a, a brief follow up on that because I think it's, it's pretty cool. Um, you, what you're seeing now is actually a lot of non-RCM vendors getting into the space uh, because the issue with AI is, is data. Typically, healthcare data is, is pretty crap, um, if I'm allowed to say that on the podcast. And it's, uh, it, it's tough for a lot of hospital systems to develop a, a program a prediction model sort of a, robustly with the data they have. Um, so you're seeing companies like Flywire and other payment vendors who aren't typically uh, healthcare specific get into this space because uh, they have a pretty robust data set in terms of where folks live, what their what their payment history is and things like that. Um, so I, I think it's pretty cool seeing some non-healthcare companies get into the, the healthcare financial space at least and hopefully uh, hopefully making it easier for, for folks to, to make, uh, make payments and making their lives a bit easier as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess, you know, just to sort of transition on that point, um, you know, going back to your, your engagements with growth strategy, uh, you know, if you can sort of walk us through that, I mean, what are some key methods that you use to sort of help firms expand into new markets, uh, either through mergers and acquisitions, either it's organically, what, what, are, what, what does that process look like? Sure. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a, a couple ways you could do this, and it depends on what type of organization we're talking about here. Um, my, my experience has been both with provider growth strategy as well as um, hospital service firms growth strategy. So think like uh, ambulances and other type type organizations like that, uh, many helicopters, uh, um, things like that. And I, I, there's really two to three ways that uh, firms think about this. They, they think about this through M&A activity. Um, so that's inorganic, inorganic growth, where they can enter a new market um, by just buying a hospital or, or buying a fleet of ambulances uh, in that new market. Um, so that's one way. Um, and in my role, typically, we'll provide diligence on the company that they're acquiring um, and tell them if that's a good idea and what the projected growth numbers would be. Uh, if they go ahead with that strategy. Uh, so that's, that's one piece of it. The second piece is organic growth, uh, and that's growth through, through a service line development um, or, or potentially opening up a new facility, uh, non M&A, but uh, building a new facility in the market. 
Um, so that's the other type of service we'll typically provide uh, at McKinsey. Um, thinking through what the revenue costs um, and ultimate business impact would be um, through organic growth growth uh, growth strategies. Um, so th th that's broadly how I think about it. There, there are some other other uh, types of, of growth strategy that are a little bit more like nuanced and uh, specific that I won't get into here, but broadly it's it's organic and inorganic growth. Got it. Okay. So then I guess sticking with organic or inorganic growth, and I know you mentioned that it varies which firms we're really talking about here, but just looking at a high level overview and obviously still being in the pandemic, uh, you know, has the pandemic caused firms to change their approach with the way that they aim to kind of explore and enter these new markets to expand? I mean, are you seeing these firms really going to the drawing board and saying, okay, we're going to set very high aggressive targets for growing and scaling up in size, or are you, you know, not have, are you seeing firms not really having those conversations kind of waiting it out until their finances improve? I mean, I can see some of the younger firms with a larger window for, you know, a high growth phase being able to do this, but maybe for a large, well-established firm, that might not be the case. So just mm -hmm. curious to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, no, definitely. I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of desire <laughs> to grow pretty quickly out, coming out of the pandemic. Um, and again, it, it depends on, on who we're talking about here, right? But if, if we stick with providers, I think, I think coming out of this, they're, they're looking to, to uh, not only recover to where they were uh, pre-pandemic, but also uh, grow after that, um, especially the bigger players in the market who have the cash to do so. Um, either through inorganic means or through just expanding their current service lines. Um, so it, it'll be interesting to see what happens if there's further consolidation in the market, uh, which is probably what I'd expect going forward. Got it. Okay. Well, I know Jefferson has a couple of questions uh, for you regarding professional development. So I'll just turn it over to him uh, to ask those. Thanks, Milan. So as Milan mentioned, we kind of now want to pivot to talking about your professional experience, John. So my first question has two parts. Number one, I was wondering if you could elaborate on what drew you into consulting and made you want to pursue a career as a consultant. And then also being that you had entered the workforce with relatively little professional experience, how has your experiences as a consulted, consultant benefited you in terms of your professional development? Sure. Yeah. And, and this is a topic broadly that's uh, pretty close to me and, and pretty recent. Uh, as uh, Jeff mentioned, you know, I, I graduated in 2019 from Sloan. Um, so definitely uh, still, this is still fresh in my mind. And uh, uh, as I'm kind of thinking through my career, this is something I, I think about pretty often. Um, in, in terms of consulting, uh, what really drew me in the first place to that industry was the, the broad set of experiences that you could have pretty quickly um, as a young worker just entering the workforce. Um, in my two years, two, two plus years since leaving graduate school and, and having worked at two consulting firms now, I've, I've served, you know, maybe a dozen clients uh, or maybe 10 clients so far across uh, most areas of healthcare. Uh, I worked in pharma, I've worked in uh, health tech, I've worked in healthcare services, and I've worked for providers. Um, and I, I think that's pretty unique to the consulting industry. Um, having that, that sort of wide array of experiences so quickly. Um, and I'd say that's, that's what really drew me to consulting in the first place. Um, and, and also I think the work you do is 
fairly interesting as a consultant because it's generally top of mind for your clients. Uh, typically, some of their their toughest problems that you're, you're engaged with uh, to solve. Uh, so, generally, you'll you'll be interfacing um, with some pretty senior leaders at at uh, your clients and and helping them think through kind of you know how they could grow their business. So sort of top of mind thing for an executive. Um, and I, I find that work exciting. No, I definitely echo that sentiment that you have a lot of opportunities as a consultant to be exposed to a lot of business areas and also drive a lot of really significant impact, even if you're in the earlier stages of your career. As a follow-up question for any of our listeners who may be aspiring consultants, could you kind of walk us through what qualities and skills that you think are crucial to becoming a successful consultant? Sure, sure. And uh, you were a consultant before, Jeff, too, so you, you might have a uh, a unique perspective here as well. Yeah, I might have to <laughs> fact check you. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I would say just given the wide array of things that you'll do, I, I think it's some of the softer skills that often come most most in in handy. Um, just being able to hold a conversation with a client or or uh, critical thinking about a problem. Um, most of my day is spent problem solving on, on the various issues that I'm tackling. Uh, and I think just critical thinking is, is an important part of this. Um, just being able to take uh, an outside view on, on something that the clients haven't necessarily thought of before. Um, so yeah, I'd say that's probably the most important thing for being a successful consultant. Um, and then of course you have more of the hard skills like uh, Excel analysis and, and deck building. Um, but I'd say that's more table stakes. I, I think to really be successful, you need to take a critical eye to the problem problem you're solving for. Uh, John, I agree with you 100%. I think oftentimes as a consultant, just having that critical thinking toolkit and having kind of an analytical mindset is a lot more of an art than a science. And so once you're comfortable kind of starting with an ambiguous problem and then kind of getting your bearings and going from there. I think that's the biggest benefit, at least in my experience that I have from working consulting that I hope to use for the rest of my career. Yeah. Um, I know Millen also has some professional development questions, so I'll pass it to him to take back over. Yeah, thank you so much, Jefferson. So John, I know you are probably one of the biggest superstars in our Sloan program. We're definitely <laughs> proud to be associated with you. And one of the reasons is, I mean, you've just had so much great success with your hard work, uh, working at two exceptionally outstanding firms with, you know, Deloitte and McKinsey. And, you know, as an aspiring consultant myself, and I know, you know, for, so, for those of our listeners that might be aspiring consultants, I'm sure this question has come up at least once in our mind. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of shed some light on the pros and cons of working in a big four firm like EY, PwC, Deloitte, or KPMG, or an MBB like McKinsey, Banzer, Boston Consulting Group, versus working in a boutique healthcare firm that may not be as well-known, may not be as large or have as many clients as them, but they're very, very specialized. What are the pros and cons to working in a firm like this? Right. That's a, that's a great question. Um, and there definitely are both pros and cons to both sides. Um, so starting with a big four slash MBB, um, I, I think on the pro side, it's the opportunity to work on a bunch of different engagements across the healthcare landscape. Um, so you can work from pharma to tech to provider to even payer or some other aspect outside of healthcare that may have a tangential impact on healthcare. 
Um, and at a big four firm, there's someone working on that type of project uh, some, somewhere sometime. So there's there's always going to be that experience. Um, and getting the chance to do that, I, I think, is really, really probably the best part of working for a firm like that. Um, I, I think another benefit of working for a larger firm is just being more established in the marketplace. Uh, internally, there's more sort of structure in terms of uh, the working style and, and the firm culture. Um, and that might be a pro or con, depending on what you're looking for. Um, conversely, on the con side for a larger firm, I, I think it's a bit easier to get lost in the shuffle. Um, especially at a firm like Deloitte uh, or another big four PwC, what have you. Um, they're so large that sometimes it's hard to, to know other people or, or build those connections with other people within the firm um, or even know people outside of your, your, your group, right? Like when I was at Deloitte, I knew the healthcare guys um, and girls, but I didn't know the, the folks who were working on uh, financial services as well. Um, and just given the size of the firm, it wasn't really feasible to, to get to know those people. Um, so I, I'd say that's that's a different con for working at a, a firm like that. Um, and then at a boutique consulting firm, um, I, I think you, you sort of get that benefit where you get to know everyone at the firm um, and kind of have that co close relationship with folks all the way from the analyst level to the senior partner level. Um, just given that they're, they tend to be pretty small, right? A boutique healthcare firm is typically 50 to 100 consultants, um, or maybe maybe even smaller, depending on on what firm you're working at. Um, so having that that connection, I think, is is the real pro. Um, and then the other one is, uh, and, and this is sort of dependent on the firm and on the person. But I think if you join a boutique healthcare firm that fits your interests really well. Um, I, I think that might be the best case scenario because you get to work on the exact type of work you want to work, you want to focus on um, and stick with that. Um, so I, I mentioned it was a, it was a pro to, <laughs> to work on a broad array of projects at a big four, but that might not be a pro for everyone. Some people want to want to focus in on a specific thing. Um, and I think boutique firms really offer that um, as a, as a, a major uh, bump in, in that category. Um, and I think on the con side for a boutique healthcare firm, I think I think there are a couple of them. Um, depending on the type of, of person you are, you you might not want to focus uh, on a specific, a specific uh, type of work. So that might also be a con. Um, I also think just in terms of name recognition, it's it, not everyone knows what uh, a boutique healthcare firm is or what they do versus a, a a big four, everyone knows what Deloitte is or, or McKinsey, you know, most people know what McKinsey is, um, at least who are familiar with, with the consulting. Um, so I, I think that's a definite, definite con on the boutique side. Um, and yeah, and, and just the last point I'll make is typically the boutique firms have less of a, I, I guess, developed process for their engagements. Um, so Sometimes it might be a little, it, it, it's harder to start out if you don't have that um, sort of defined toolkit um, that every consultant has at uh, like a McKinsey type, type of firm. Got it. Okay. No, that actually summarizes it quite well. And I actually have one follow-up to what you said. 
which was, you know, with large firms, you have a lot of diverse diversification mm -hmm. with the projects you work on with different clients versus a boutique firm, you might be, you know, specialized early on. Uh, you know, how does that impact your overall career growth as a consultant? And do you find on average that it's easier or harder to transition from a big four MBB to a boutique versus a boutique going up to a big four or MBB? Just curious to hear your thoughts on those two. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's harder to transfer from a boutique to a big four slash MBB versus the other way around. Um, and I just say that because, because you can work at an MBB and do the boutique for, firm's work, and then you can transfer there pretty easily to a boutique firm versus a boutique firm, you're doing a specific type of work and that's only part of what a bigger firm does. So it's a, a bit harder to kind of make that case to navigate to a more generalist, a generalist firm. Um, so yeah, from a career standpoint, I think it'll be tougher to make that jump. Um, and then also in terms of career trajectory, I, I think it really, really depends on the firm. Um, some firms have a very regimented time frame to get promoted and and, um, and what have you. And, and some firms are, are pretty uh, meritocratic and will promote you when you're ready. Um, and I, I think boutique firms are more in the latter category just because they're smaller and they have more more insight uh, into the work you're doing. Um, so from that perspective, it, it might be a, a pretty big pro in the boutique, boutique camp, um, having that opportunity to grow pretty quick um, as you show your skill set and show kind of what you could bring to the clients. Got it. Okay. So it sounds like what you're saying is in terms of career growth, it's maybe it's, it's slightly better to work at a boutique firm where they, they're not as hard set on their timelines for promotions, things like that. And obviously, given the opportunities, you know, and perhaps the high visibility projects, you might have a better chance at, at uh, you know, moving up the ladder at a boutique. But in terms of transitioning from a boutique to MBB, it's, it's a lot more difficult to do that versus going to an MBB or a big four and then moving to a boutique, sounds like. Yeah, I think that's right. But that's also, uh, I'm speaking in generality, like, it could be that you're probably really fast at a MBB and, and a boutique has a slower trajectory. Um, so I'd say broadly speaking, that's correct, but uh, there's always exceptions uh, as you know, and, and uh, folks know. Um, right. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I want to give it over back to Jefferson because he had one final question. Uh, Jeff, take it away. John, to close us out, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your personal professional journey and how you saw your kind of roles in Deloitte and McKinsey increase. And as those roles increased, what kind of skills did you gain and develop and what kind of new responsibilities did you take on? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, definitely a pretty, pretty quick, quick ramp up, um, especially coming to a firm like McKinsey. Um, I, I think when you're first entering the workforce, the expectation is you just sort of have an open mind and are willing to learn and, and have a positive attitude about uh, about the work you're doing. Um, and sort of as you get more tenured, the expectation is that you bring more of a subject matter uh, perspective, expertise to the, the problem you're solving for, um, as well as you have a more, uh, I, I guess, robust analytical toolkit um, that you can draw on. Um, so for me, being, being two years out of school, I'm sort of transitioning from um, the first part to the second part, um, where I could bring kind of a, a more 
I, I guess, uh, informed perspective from my previous work and my previous client engagements uh, to new client engagements. And also from an analytical standpoint, uh, having a more robust robust uh, toolkit there. Um, and then I would say it's a pretty, pretty typical, especially in consulting, uh, that's uh, two years, two to three years is generally the expectation of, of when you when you start uh, uh, switching over mindsets, I suppose you could say. Now that's interesting to see here how your kind of responsibilities as well as your industry knowledge was refined over the course of your career. One quick follow-up question I did have was, you mentioned you had to get better with dealing with ambiguity. I think as we discussed earlier, that's really an important thing for any aspiring consultant. So do you have any tips or advice to any of our early careers listeners on how to deal with ambiguity in the consulting profession or really any other type of professional services kind of work? Yeah, I think I think what's been most helpful to me is breaking breaking down whatever problem you're trying to tackle into more manageable bite-sized chunks. Uh, because when you're dropped into a new client scenario or, or you're ramping up a new project at the hospital or, or startup you're working at, um, if you look at the problem as a whole, it it's, can sometimes be overwhelming. I know I find it overwhelming if I'm trying to tackle everything at once. Um, so what I like to do when I'm first starting out and when there is a ton of ambiguity is, is develop kind of a plan going forward and sort of set benchmarks on a weekly basis on, on what I want to do and what I'm tracking towards in that week. Uh, but I found that just by setting those benchmarks and setting goals, um, the ambiguity gets less daunting uh, just because I'm, I know I'm working towards something. So I'm able to sort of compartment, compartmentalize and prioritize what I'm doing um, on a daily basis. Um, I've really found that the most helpful to, to dealing with ambiguous problems, um, just kind of sort of treating it like a, a math problem and starting from the beginning and <laughs> working my way towards the answer. No, that's very helpful to hear. And it's also something I think I'm definitely going to take and try to apply in my professional experiences. And I think all of our listeners can take with them as well. Um, John, that wraps up our questions for the day. Thank you so much for joining us to kick off the new season of the Health Conscious Pod. We really enjoyed having you and hearing your insights. Yeah, of course. And again, thank you both for being excellent hosts and, and having me. Um, I remember when I was, I was hosting this podcast. And I, as I said, I'm excited to to be back at the other end. Um, so thank you again. Yeah, anytime, John. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Um, if you have any suggestions on content or any guests that you would like to see, please feel free to let us know in the comments. And until next time, take care. <laughs>